Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that we'll be talking about sexual assault and the legal system. If you need to skip this one, we'll be back next week with a new episode. This is the show about what becomes possible when we reframe narratives of hardship. We've thought about loneliness, illness, the myth of the ideal family, and more. And it's led to some incredible conversations behind the scenes. One of those came about when production assistant Taylor Williamson brought some suggestions for guests. And at the top of that list was Marley Liss, an advocate for restorative justice. Marley is a speaker, author, and sensuality coach, a self-described queer, sparkle-loving feminist. She's one of those people whose joy for life seems to be at the forefront of everything she does. And she's someone who's turned her own pain into purpose. Because Marley is also a sexual assault survivor. It was her personal experience that led her to advocate on behalf of other survivors. You may have heard of restorative justice. It's a philosophy of justice that focuses on trying to repair the harm that results after a crime is committed. Here at Gravity, we'd heard of it mostly in the context of the modern abolitionist movement and the Me Too movement like when Laura Dern mentioned it in her 2018 Golden Globe speech. I urge all of us to not only support survivors and bystanders who are brave enough to tell their truth, but to promote restorative justice. Restorative justice challenges us to rethink cultural narratives about what justice means, because we often think of justice as retribution with a focus on punishing the perpetrator. But restorative justice gives survivors a chance to bend the justice process toward their needs. And when we heard about Marley's work, we were drawn to her personal story about redefining justice for herself as a survivor. We are so glad she could join us. In this episode, let's explore justice. What else can justice mean other than retribution? How can the pursuit of justice better honor the needs of the person or community who were harmed? And what new possibilities for healing and repair might emerge through a reimagined process? I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, and this is Gravity, a show about what becomes possible when we look at hardships differently. In this episode, we'll hear from Marley Liss about her journey toward healing and how it led her to restorative justice. It's become important to her to share her story. I very much wish and am committed to making restorative justice way more accessible. I really think there's so much power in breaking silence around what we've been through. Marley's trained as a social worker. Back in 2016, she was a 21-year-old college student living in Toronto with friends. One night, she was held against her will for hours and assaulted by a stranger. In the immediate, awful aftermath, 
All Marley knew was that she wanted justice. So she did what you might expect. She collected evidence. She filed a police report. She brought a criminal case against her attacker. But Marley was struggling and trying to recover. As the court proceedings went on, she started to feel that the process itself was layering on additional hurt. What was it about that process that was so difficult? I, f I find it very ironic, um, but I feel like the justice system that is the punitive system is very much a non-consensual process. And if we're trying to address consent and to make that the standard in our world, I just think it's not the way to do it. So some of the things I experienced were not having any say in what I can or can't respond to. So going to preliminary trial, being on the stand for about five hours, starting to feel like I was the one on trial and having these really invasive questions thrown at me and not having the option to say, I can't answer that or that's too painful for me to answer um, because I was told I would be deemed non-cooperative by the judge and could potentially be charged for not answering those questions. I also um, could not speak to some of my closest friends at that time because they were witnesses, so that was really hard. And it just, it didn't make any sense to me. There was a strange contradiction in being required to speak and at the same time feeling unheard. I, I really feel like when I think of the trauma I experienced, I feel like so much felt lost to me that day. Like I felt like my voice, I think that was the biggest thing. My voice felt really lost to me. Um, like my no was, had no power. Like my voice had no power and my mouth was covered for a lot of it as well. And I just, I felt voiceless. And going into the punitive system continued that to an even bigger degree. It was like, you're not even the, the victim here. Like the way the justice system sets it up is you're a witness to a crime done to the crown, to the state. So that, that felt really just like there was this horrible act of dehumanization at the root of all this. And now we're sitting in court and I feel dehumanized and my assailants there being dehumanized. And there's just no, it's just continuing and continuing. Marley heard over and over during the court proceedings that she was doing the right thing. She was taking the right path. This was how it was done. This was the way justice was served. But Marley also needed to recover, to heal. She was suffering deeply and had thoughts of taking her own life. To be honest, I, I was about ready to drop the charges because I just, it was so hard to sit on the stand and it was just like, it just felt so painful to me. Marley realized that she needed something different, but she didn't know exactly what or how to get there. She's a spiritual person and she listened to herself closely. Marley started to imagine a process that centered her needs and her voice. She wanted answers from the person who assaulted her to help her make sense of what happened and to make him accountable, not just to society, but to her. What were the things that started to come onto that wish list um, of what you wanted for yourself or what you 
were wanting from him as part of your recovery process? What kind of things did you start to see coming into view that you did need? I really, after the assault, like focused 100% on my own healing. I was in a really low place and that's what I was really focused on. And yet reporting was all that I knew if I wanted any sort of justice, which I did. But all along, I, you know, would like whisper to some close friends this sort of fantasy I had and I I deemed it quite delusional because I didn't know about restorative justice and it was just such a contrast to the punitive system that we see in the media and in articles all the time but I would tell my close friends like in my world I would sit down with this person and we would like cry together and I would ask what happened a line that kept coming to me was what happened between the time a baby was born and a perpetrator was made. And I just had these burning questions. And I said to a friend, you know, in my dream world, we would sit down together, like he would get help, all these things. And she said, so make it happen. And that really like lit a fire for me. I had never considered acting on this. Um, And so that's when I started kind of researching and came across restorative justice. And I felt like, wow, this thing I've been wanting has a name and a history so instead of saying how can we punish this person it centers the person who was harmed so me in this case the survivor and says like wow you were harmed um how can we repair this how can we make this right and the person who caused harm how can we bring in resources and change to make sure that they don't do that again we're going to take a quick ad break we'll be right back Meditation has helped me so much during hard times, and the meditation app I've kept coming back to is Headspace. I've shared it multiple times with family and friends, and I'm so glad to recommend it here. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Whatever the situation, Headspace really can help. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has meditations you can do with your kids. Katie's favorite is called Paying Attention. It's three minutes long, and it's still good even when you've done it approximately 10,000 times. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. For a free one-month trial of Headspace, go to headspace.com gravity. That's headspace.com gravity for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com gravity. Modern restorative justice practices trace back to a number of cultures. Consider the Jewish value of tikkun olam, repair the world, pursue healing both in yourself and in the larger community. Or the Mohawk Nations Council of Nikanikan Rio, which translates to the good mind. In that process, every case opens with offenders being asked to give thanks to Mother Earth, 
the people involved, victims and offenders, are given space to say what they think are the clearest steps towards re-establishing harmony. Instead of leading with the questions, who broke the law and what should the punishment be, restorative justice asks first, who was harmed? What steps need to be taken for them to heal? The goal of restorative justice isn't forgiveness or even reconciliation per se, but harm repair as defined by the people involved. The first case of restorative justice within the Canadian justice system was in 1974 in a vandalism case when a probation officer and a Mennonite prison support worker arranged for a pair of teenagers who'd vandalized property to meet face-to-face with the people they harmed and try to agree together on restitution. The success of that case led to the country's first victim-offender reconciliation program in Ontario, created with the support of the local Mennonite community. The restorative justice movement has grown ever since. It's now used regularly in the U.S. and Canada for crimes ranging from vandalism to serious violence, including even domestic violence, homicide, and, like it was for Marley's case, sexual assault. The process can lead to a variety of outcomes, from out-of-court settlements to sentencing. For Marley, the idea of an alternative path, as radical as it might have seemed, felt literally like a lifeboat, so she pressed for it. She says that getting the phone call that the restorative justice process was available for her case was one of the most meaningful moments of her life. Her assailant agreed to participate, and a long journey began. In Marley's case, the process took a year, with intensive preparation and hours of personal reflection in advance, and this particular set of people, including her lawyers, who wanted to see where the process might lead. So from the moment it was decided that restorative justice would happen, my assailant began therapy, which was very meaningful to me. Um, I think he went through six months of therapy um, and the, the therapist would kind of report of where he was at, if he was taking accountability, showing remorse, um, all of these kind of things. And for me, I was already deep onto a healing path because really like after this assault, my healing did become, like it sounds dramatic, but it did become quite do or die. I was really like in that place of considering taking my life and I just leaned into everything, like therapy, yoga, I worked with indigenous elders, I studied somatic healing. Um, I worked for different body image organizations, went to survivor groups, like started writing so many different things um, to heal. And so for me, it was a lot of, (laughs) a lot of prep. Rather than a trial in a courtroom, Marley's case culminated in a circle, like an actual circle, with everyone, including the perpetrator, together in person. That's a hallmark of the restorative justice process. Because the circle was built around the idea that trauma ripples, Marley's sister and mother joined too. Their lawyers were present and trained mediators facilitated the session. And I think um, that all of those emotional regulation tools were really important for me to be in the circle. So by the time we did get to the circle, I kind of felt like we had been walking towards it for a thousand years. And we got to that room and I was there, my mom, my sister, my assailant and his friend, 
my lawyer, the prosecutor um, who really advocated for this outcome, and two mediators. And basically, we got into that room, and I'll just say too, like I really feel punitive and restorative justice is night and day. Like they had put in all the safeguards around triggers. There was like a snack table and snack breaks. There were positive quotes on the wall. There was just like so much, um, I'd say like so much love that they put into the room to make it feel safe. And they asked us one question, which was what brought you here today? And we took eight hours to answer that question. Sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, eight hours, that sounds horrible, but I really needed it to be eight hours. Like there was so much that I needed to get out of my body through my voice and that I needed to hear from him as well. So yeah, we went around three times and there was that really powerful moment where he looked me in the eye and to me, my biggest fear was that he'd show up and just be completely removed or checked out. But he really was present in the room and you know, had tears in his eyes throughout the day. And he looked me in the eye and said, I did sexually assault you. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do to take it back, but I hope that being here today can help. And to some people that might sound like just words, but I really needed that. Like I felt like a knot untied in my stomach and I just started bawling and bawling. It just like I really needed to have that moment. It was so deeply healing. What were some of the other things that happened that day that were either really turning points or even surprising to you? It feels like the first half of the day was like the hard, like getting out the really hard stuff. Like the really like the anger, the rawness, the kind of like purging of all the the crap. <laughs> like, And then the second half of the day felt like the healing, like what happens beyond the healing and the accountability and it's like we start to shift into transformation and you know that's when my assailant really started to like share about all he'd learned in therapy around um like the way that he's committed to treating women now and the fact that he would like to help stop sexual violence now and that this did change his life in a different way but in a in a way that paralleled how it changed my own life like we all have different words for it, like authenticity, vulnerability. And for me, it's like the power of realness. And if we had gone to a criminal trial, we would have never had that realness. He would have showed up with a script that his defense lawyer gave him. And we just never would have had that. And so to sit down and be honest about something that's so hard to speak about was like immensely empowering and healing. And it sounds like you had so much power and time and preparation, I think, to create a circumstance where you would be able to get what you needed and have space to figure out what you needed. It must have felt really empowering. Incredibly. Something I always say, too, is like, we are still talking about sexual violence. So obviously, in an ideal world, we don't have to say, how do we deal with sexual violence, restorative or punitive? Um, so like it it was still immensely hard and I, I always do try to honor the part of myself that was like physically shaking just by being 
in that room with him because it's it's hard like that emotional healing is is really hard but I went into that circle shaking and I left feeling incredibly empowered and even happy and I share that because I don't think there's any representation or stories of survivors feeling a level of closure and justice that actually brings them empowerment and joy. Sometimes, I don't know, sometimes I'm worried about being judged as like woo-woo or whatever, or like bypassing realness, but I really was just like, it was so incredibly healing and it really blew my mind that such deep hurt, like the deepest, deepest hurt, like hurt that almost caused me to take my life eventually led to this like incredibly healing and empowering circle where there was some level of let's heal this together you know I was able to to say to him like this is so much bigger than us it really is like when we think of these wounds between men and women especially around sexual violence like what we we're doing that room in that room is so huge and so there was this incredible sense of like, I like to say it was beyond my expectations, but aligned with my dreams. At the end of the healing circle, Marley surprised herself. She chose to forgive her assailant. Then she made a radical decision, an intensely personal one. She dropped the charges against the man who assaulted her. There was a very clear reclamation for me in that moment of number one, like my voice does hold power. Like the, the way that my no wasn't heard that day, like now my voice was being heard by the system and by people who hold a lot of like societal power. And I was like, wow, like if I can do that here, I can do that anywhere. Like I, essentially I can bring my magic and my love anywhere and it might transform the space instead of me having to squish into what's already there it might actually transform the space marley in her work as a restorative justice advocate knows that for many survivors this process itself would be undesirable or even unthinkable or that healing and power might mean something extremely different and result in a very different resolution and she knows there are cases where public safety overrides reconciliation. But even now, years later, Marley knows she made the right choices for herself as she mapped a different path to justice. Hearing her assailant take responsibility for his actions and seeing evidence that he was changed were, for Marley, the justice she needed. The lawyers who accompanied her through the process felt that the needs of the legal system were served too. I will get this projection sometimes of like, oh, like so saintly, like to go through this process and give grant him forgiveness and give him this circle. And I always clarify, like, this was very much for me. And the beauty of this process is that it just so happened that it was also for him. Marley kept coming back to the adage, hurt people hurt people. So it's very commonplace for sexual offenders in prison to never ever talk about what they did, which means they, and, I, and my assailant shared this with me as well, like from the moment he met his defense lawyer, his defense lawyer said, don't tell me what happened, I don't wanna hear your story, 
From now on, I'll tell you what happened, here's how it went. And so from that moment on, if he had gone, like seen that through all the way to prison, if it did go there, he would never ever talk about, reflect on, take accountability for, feel into, think about what he did. And then eventually, and he'd be immersed all that time in a culture of violence and isolation, which are two of the biggest factors that are shown to lead to more violence. And then he would get out, come back into the world, be angry about his time, not have changed anything regarding his beliefs or you know, the way he is in the world at all and would likely reoffend. So my logic in this partially was like, I want to break that cycle of dehumanization. Like I don't, I want that to end. I want something different to, to happen from this point on. Restorative justice is one way to help break that cycle. It means expanding the options available to survivors and rethinking what justice itself means. How do you think about justice now? What I do now that I never did before was, is think about the fact that I'm allowed to have my own definition of justice. Because when I first started walking the punitive path, I was like, there's like justice is already defined by the system. Justice equals courtrooms, blah, 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 blah. And I remember someone asked me that. They said, well, Marley, what does justice look like to you? What would it feel like to you? And and so I guess my answer is, in my definition of justice, there's there's space for my needs. It's really, that definition is shaped by what I need. And I needed closure. I needed a process of humanizing one another in order to feel safe. I needed um, to reclaim my voice and my worldview. So to me, justice is like, what are my needs and what is gonna be most healing and let's shape the process around that. Gravity is a show about possibility and I can't stop thinking about this conversation, about the way Marley listened to herself about the transformation that came about in her case, and about the new and ancient possibilities for healing when we think about justice differently, when we define it in community and with personal accountability to those who've been harmed. About how through restorative justice, there's the possibility for cycles of violence to be broken. And especially as you've heard here about how survivors' voices and needs must be at the forefront There's a poem by Nikita Gill that ends with the lines, you must never ever let them take those flames from within your soul. Instead, you must burn brighter than ever because you are a daughter of the sun and you belong only to yourself. Every survivor deserves reclamation and Marley's path opens up another possibility toward that. In her work as an advocate, Marley invites survivors to ask, what do I need to heal? She wants people to know that this option exists, that justice can include accountability and even bring healing, and that no one is alone in their struggle. You can check out our show notes for more information about the restorative justice process and Marley's work. In every episode of Gravity, we have a poem, because poetry is a language all its own, 
that can capture what it is to be human and validate and even shape our experience in ways nothing else can. Thank you so much to Marley Liss for sharing her story here. This episode's poem is written by her, and it's read by Kara Sweeney, the Crown attorney who helped advocate for Marley's restorative justice process. I was so grateful to be invited to read this poem. Not only just a poem, but a poem written by Marley at the time when she was the most distraught. And I met Marley at a time in my life when I was exhausted. I'd lost hope. I didn't know if I could continue to do this job. And I knew when we met, I knew that we would do something together. I just didn't know what it would be. She has brought so much joy and freedom to my life. Well, she's given me hope that there's a better way to do things. So I'm so grateful. I'm so happy to be reading this beautiful poem that she's written. And I hope that you enjoy it. You force-fed me hatred, and I turned it into love. How powerful that is. And I've surrounded myself with an army of warriors who do the same, fighting back with love. We do not need that toxicity running through our veins. We have learned by experience that this world needs no more hate. We cannot begin to let our hearts resemble those who broke them in the first place. So breathe in healing and breathe out gentle compassion. Keep teaching the world that love is louder. Know that if that kind of hate lived within us, our hearts would never have broken, our souls would not have ached at all. Pray for more than the survival of your physical self and do not let your spirit die. You have faced enough loss already. Keep breathing. Inhale love and exhale only love. Thank you for joining Marley Liss and me in this episode of Gravity. Special thanks to Rochelle Arms Almengor. Gravity is produced by Maddie Foley and Lindsay Cradwell, with help from Taylor Williamson from Wonder Media Network. Original music is by Rachel Wardell. Rega Murthy is our editor. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. And you can follow me, Lucy, on Twitter at RocketGirlMD. Please take time to share Gravity with a friend and to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Before you go, here's another podcast you might enjoy. Have you ever wondered what the pandemic has been like for healthcare workers? Then take a listen to our friends at The Nocturnists, a medical storytelling podcast that collects deeply personal missives from healthcare workers across North America. They've just launched the second installment of Stories from a Pandemic, which delves into the inner lives of the medical professionals fighting COVID-19. This series lays the groundwork for processing what the pandemic has revealed about our healthcare system and ourselves. Check out The Nocturnist at thenocturnist.com or wherever you get your podcasts.